Section 42 of The History of Chemistry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lawrence Trask, Mount Vernon, Ohio. InterfaceAudio.com. The History of Chemistry by Thomas Thompson. Volume 2, Chapter 2 of the progress of philosophical chemistry in Sweden, part four. It seems that while Scheele was in Stockholm, he had made experiments on cream of tartar and had succeeded in separating it from tartaric acid in a state of purity. He had also determined a number of the properties of tartaric acid and examined several of the tartrates. He drew up an account of these results and sent it to Bergman, Bergman, seeing a paper subscribed by the name of a person who was unknown to him, laid it aside without looking at it, and forgot it altogether. Scheele was very much provoked at this contemptuous and unmerited treatment. He drew up another account of his experiments and gave it to Retzius, who sent it to the Stockholm Academy of Sciences, with some additions of his own, in whose memoirs it was published in the year 1770. It cost Assessor Gaughan considerable trouble to satisfy Scheele that Bergman's conduct was merely the result of inadvertence, and that he had no intention whatever of treating him either with contempt or neglect. After much entreaty, he prevailed upon Scheele to allow him to introduce him to the professor of chemistry. The introduction took place accordingly, and ever after, Bergman and Scheele continued steady friends, Bergman facilitating the researches of Scheele by every means in his power. So high did the character of Scheele speedily rise in Uppsala, that when the Duke of Pseudomania visited the university soon after, in company with Prince Henry of Prussia, Scheele was appointed by the university to exhibit some chemical processes before him. He fulfilled his charge, and performed in different furnaces several curious and striking experiments. Prince Henry asked him various questions, and expressed satisfaction at the answers given. He was particularly pleased when informed that he was a native of Stralsund. Those two princes afterwards stated to the professors that they would take it as a favor if Scheele could have free access to the laboratory of the university whenever he wished to make experiments. In the year 1775, on the death of Mr. Poplar, apothecary at Koping, a small place on the north side of Lake Mahler, he was appointed by the medical college provisor of the apothecary shop. In Sweden, all the apothecaries are under the control of the medical college, and no one can open a shop without undergoing an examination and receiving license from that learned body. In the course of the examinations, which he was obliged to undergo, Scheele gave great proofs of his abilities, and obtained the appointment. In 1777, the widow sold him the shop and business, according to a written agreement made between them, but they still continued housekeeping at their joint expense. He had already distinguished himself by his discovery of fluoric acid, and by his admirable paper on manganese. It was said, too, that it was he who made the experiments on carbonic acid gas, which constitute the substance of Bergman's paper on the subject, and which confirmed and established Bergman's idea that it was an acid. 
At Coping, he continued his researches with unremitting perseverance, and made more discoveries than all the chemists of his time united together. It was here that he made the experiments on air and fire, which constitute the materials of his celebrated work on these subjects. The theory which he formed was indeed erroneous, but the numerous discoveries which the book contains must always excite the admiration of every chemist. His discovery of oxygen gas had been anticipated by Priestley, but his analysis of atmospheric air was new and satisfactory, was peculiarly his own. The processes by means of which he procured oxygen gas were also new, simple, and easy, and are still followed by chemists in general. During his residence at Coping, he published a great number of chemical papers, and every one of them contained a discovery. The whole of his time was devoted to chemical investigations. Every action of his life had a tendency to forward the advancement of his favorite science. All his thoughts were turned to the same object. All his letters were devoted to chemical observations and chemical discussions. Krell's Annals was at that time the chief periodical work on chemistry in Germany. He got the numbers regularly as they were published, and was one of Krell's most constant and most valuable correspondents. Every one of his letters published in that work either contains some new chemical fact or exposes the errors and mistakes of some one or other of Krell's numerous correspondents. Scheele's outward appearance was by no means prepossessing. He seldom joined in the usual conversations and amusements of society having neither leisure nor inclination for them. What little time he had to spare from the hurry of his profession was always employed in making experiments. It was only when he received visits from his friends, with whom he could converse on his favorite science, that he indulged himself in a little relaxation. For such intimate friends he had a sincere affection. This regard was extended to all of the zealous cultivators of chemistry in every part of the world, whether personally known to him or not. He kept up a correspondence with several, though this correspondence was much limited by his ignorance of all languages except German, for at least he could not write fluently in any other language. His chemical papers were always written in German and translated into Swedish before they were inserted in the memoirs of the Stockholm Academy, where most of them appeared. He was kind and affable to all. Before he adopted an opinion in science, he reflected maturely on it. But after he had once embraced it, his opinions were not easily shaken. However, he did not hesitate to give up an opinion as soon as it had been proved to be erroneous. Thus he entirely renounced the notion which he once entertained that silica is a compound of water and fluoric acid, because it was demonstrated by Meyer and others that this silica was derived from the glass vessels in which the fluoric acid was prepared, and that these glass vessels were speedily corroded into holes, and that if fluoric acid was prepared in metallic vessels and not allowed to come in contact with glass or any substance containing silica, it might be mixed with water without any deposition of silica whatever. It appears also by a letter of his published in Krell's Annals that he was satisfied of the accuracy of Mr. Cavendish's experiments, showing that water was a compound of oxygen and hydrogen gases, and one of Lavoisier's repetition of them. 
He attempted to reconcile this fact with his own notion that heat is a compound of oxygen and hydrogen. But his arguments on that subject, though ingenious, are not satisfactory, and there is little doubt that if he had lived somewhat longer, and had been able to repeat his own experiments and compare them with those of Cavendish and Lavoisier, he would have given up his own theory and adopted that of Lavoisier, or, at any rate, the explanation of Cavendish, which, being more comfortable to his own preconceived notions, might have been embraced by him in preference. It is said by Dr. Krell that Scheele was invited over to England with an offer of an easy and advantageous situation but that his love of quiet and retirement and his partiality for sweden where he had spent the greatest part of his life threw difficulties in the way of these overtures and that a change in the english ministry put a stop to them for the time the invitation krell says was renewed in seventeen eighty six with the offer of a salary of three hundred l a year but shiel's death put a final stop to it I have very great doubts about the truth of this statement, and many years ago, during the lifetime of Sir Joseph Banks, Mr. Cavendish, and Mr. Kirwan, I made an inquiry about the circumstance. But none of the chemists in Great Britain, who were at that time numerous and highly respectable, had ever heard of any such negotiation. I am utterly at a loss to conceive what one individual in any of the ministries of George III was either acquainted with the science of chemistry, or at all interested in its progress. They were also intent upon accomplishing their own objects, or those of their sovereign, that they had neither time nor inclination to think of science, and certainly no money to devote to any of its votaries. What minister in Great Britain ever attempted to cherish the sciences, or to reward those who cultivate them with success? If we accept Mr. Montague, who procured the place of master of the mint for Sir Isaac Newton, I know of no one. While in every other nation in Europe science is directly promoted, and considerable sums are appropriated for its cultivation, and for the support of a certain number of individuals, who have shown themselves capable of extending its boundaries, not a single farthing has been devoted to any such purpose in Great Britain. Science has been left entirely to itself, and whatever has been done by way of promoting it has been performed by the unaided exertions of private individuals. George Third himself was a patron of literature and an encourager of botany. He might have been disposed to reward the unrivaled eminence which Scheele had attained, but this he could only have done by bestowing on him a pension out of his privy purse. No situation which Scheele could fill was at his disposal. The universities and the church were both shut against a Lutheran, and no pharmaceutical places exist in this country to which Scheele could have been appointed. If any such project had ever existed, it must have been an idea which struck some man of science that such a proposal to a man of Scheele's eminence would redound to the credit of the country. But that such a project should have been broached by a British ministry, or by any man of great political influence, is an opinion that no person would adopt who has paid any attention to the history of Great Britain since the Revolution to the present time. Scheele felt at last a sacrifice to his ardent love for his science. He was unable to abstain from experimenting, and many of his experiments were unavoidably made in his shop where he was exposed during winter, in the ungenial climate of Sweden, to cold draughts of air.
he caught rheumatism in consequence, and the disease was aggravated by his ardour and perseverance in his pursuits. When he purchased the apothecary's shop in which his business was carried on, he had formed the resolution of marrying the widow of his predecessor, and he had only delayed it from the honourable principle of acquiring, in the first place, sufficient property to render such an alliance desirable on her part. At length in the month of March, 1786, he declared his intention of marrying her, but his disease at this time increased very fast, and his hopes of recovery daily diminished. He was sensible of this, but nevertheless he performed his promise and married her on the 19th of May, at a time when he lay on his deathbed. On the 21st he left her by his will the disposal of the whole of his property, and the same day on which he so tenderly provided for her he died i shall now endeavour to give the reader an idea of the principal chemical discoveries for which we are indebted to scheele his papers with the exception of his book on air and fire which was published separately by bergman are all to be found either in the memoirs of the stockholm academy of science or in krell's journal they were collected, and a Latin translation of them, made by Godfrey Henry Schaeffer, published at Leipzig in 1788, by Henstreet, the editor of the three last volumes of Bergman's Opuscula. A French translation of them was made in consequence of the exertions of M. Norveau, and an English translation of them, in 1786, by means of Dr. Beddoes, when he was a student in Edinburgh. There are also several German translations, but I have never had an opportunity of seeing them. 1. Scheele's first paper was published by Retzius in 1770. It gives a method of obtaining pure tartaric acid. The process was to decompose cream of tartar by means of chalk. One half of the tartaric acid unites to the lime, and falls down in the state of a white insoluble powder being tartrate of lime. The cream of tartar, thus derived of half its acid, is converted into the neutral salt formerly distinguished by the name of soluble tartar, from its great solubility in water. It dissolves and may be obtained in crystals by the usual method of crystallizing salts. The tartrate of lime is washed with water and then mixed with a quantity of dilute sulfuric acid, just capable of saturating the lime contained in the tartrate of lime. The mixture is digested for some time. The sulfuric acid displaces the tartaric acid and combines with the lime, and as the sulfate of lime is but very little soluble in water, the greatest part of it precipitates and the clear liquor is drawn off. It consists of tartaric acid held in solution by water, but not quite free from sulfate of lime. By repeated concentrations, all the sulphate of lime falls down, and at last the tartaric acid itself is obtained in large crystals. This process is still followed by the manufacturers of this country, for tartaric acid is used to a very considerable extent by the calico printers in various processes. For example, it is applied, thickened with gum, to different parts of cloth dyed turkey red, the cloth is then passed through water containing the requisite quantity of chloride of lime. The tartaric acid, uniting with the lime, sets the chlorine at liberty, which immediately destroys the red color wherever the tartaric acid has been applied, but leaves all the other parts of the cloth, 
unchanged. 2. The paper on fluoric acid appeared in the memoirs of the Stockholm Academy for 1771 when Scheele was in Scharenberg's apothecary's shop in Stockholm, where doubtless the experiments were made. Three years before, Margraaf had attempted an analysis of fluor spar, but had discovered nothing. Scheele demonstrated that it is a compound of lime and a peculiar acid, to which he gave the name of fluoric acid. This acid he obtained in solution in water. It was separated from the fluor spar by sulfuric, muriatic, nitric, and phosphoric acids. When the fluoric acid came in contact with water, a white crust was formed, which proved on examination to be silica. Scheele at first thought that this silica was a compound of fluoric acid and water, but it was afterwards proved by Weigleb and by Meyer that this notion is inaccurate and that the silica was corroded from the retort into which the fluor spar and sulfuric acid were put. Bergman, who had adopted Scheele's theory of the nature of silica, was so satisfied by these experiments that he gave it up, as Scheele himself did soon after. Scheele did not obtain fluoric acid in a state of purity, but only flasilicic acid, nor were chemists acquainted with the properties of fluoric acid till Gay-Lussac and Thenard published their researches Physiochemiques in 1811. End of section 42. Recording by Lawrence Trask. InterfaceAudio.com.